Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And each week, twice a week, all through 2022, we're going to bring you brand new original episodes on military history. History that spans from Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations through to the Normandy landings and the war on terror. It is truly a podcast that stretches from Napoleon to now, and we like to say we're on the front line of military history, and we're excited for you to join us through 2022. We're going to start the new year with a bang, with an episode about the Cuban Missile Crisis, which of course didn't end in a bang. Thank goodness it was for 13 days in October 1962 that the world waited, seemingly on the brink of nuclear war. A crisis that had occurred because American U-2 spy planes secretly photographed nuclear missile sites being built by the Soviet Union on Cuba. And Cuba's located just 90 miles off the coast of Florida. And you didn't want to have nuclear missiles 90 miles off the coast of the United States. Well, Khrushchev did. But of course, Kennedy didn't. And this brings him into the most tense standoff in history as these world leaders go head to head. To tell us all about this amazing history of nuclear brinksmanship, we're joined by the brilliant Michael Dobbs, a historian of presidential crisis and the author of One Minute to Midnight, Kennedy, Khrushchev, Castro and the Brink of Nuclear War. Now, make sure that you follow along on Twitter and on Instagram during this new year. We have some amazing content where you can find Follow me around the battlefields of Europe as we film for brand new history hit TV shows. You can follow on Instagram at James Rogers History. We've got some reels and videos that are well, pretty good, I, I must say. We're doing pretty well at the moment. So join us along on there and on Twitter at History Hit WW2. And remember, if there's something you want to hear this year, then get in contact directly. If there's a history you want us to cover, email us on warfare at historyhit.com. But now, here is the brilliant Michael Dobbs on the Cuban Missile Crisis. Enjoy. Hi, Michael. Thanks for coming on the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Not a problem at all. Are you all set for 2022? Do you have any New Year's resolutions on the horizon or exciting projects you can tell us about? Well, I just finished a book about Nixon and Watergate, which came out this year. So I'm uh, really kind of treading water before embarking on my next project. I've got two new grandchildren. They're taking up quite a bit of time. 
but eventually <laughs> I'll get round to something. Yes. So grandchildren 2022 sounds like the big project. Yeah, it's uh, quite a big project. <laughs> so with Watergate, have you been talking with people like Bob Woodward? I remember listening to him when I was over at Yale, listening to him speak during a lecture about that period. Is that what you've been doing, interviewing the people from that time? Or have you been delving into the archives? Well, actually, more the archives, I would say, because, you know, they're so rich, particularly with Nixon and Watergate. And Nixon was unique among American presidents in taping himself in every room in the White House. So those tapes, which only were released over the last few years, were a, you know incredible source for me and enabled me to really tell the story like a novelist might tell the story, with lots of dialogue and following Nixon from one room to another around the White House as he faced the greatest crisis of his presidency and probably his life. Wow. So are these written out transcripts or can you actually listen to the audio files? Uh, you can listen, and that's the problem, because some of the audio is not very audible, but some of it is quite easy to listen to. So I spent a lot of time listening to Nixon's tapes. And of course, no president is ever going to tape himself again the way Nixon did, for the simple reason that it's really the tapes that led to Nixon's resignation. And no president or probably world leader is ever going to bequeath to us the kind of historical record that Nixon did. I mean, talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis, yes. Kennedy did tape the records of his, what was known as the XCOM meetings, the executive committee meetings during the 13 days of the crisis, the most intense period of the crisis. The difference between Nixon and Kennedy was that Kennedy had a switch and he recorded meetings in the cabinet room of the White House and was able to choose which meetings he would record, whereas Nixon recorded absolutely everything and there was no on-off switch. The tape recorders simply started when Nixon entered the room. So with Nixon, you get the good, the bad, the ugly, the criminal. And with Kennedy, you only get what the president decided to keep for the historical record. Ah, I see. Clever Kennedy. That makes a lot more sense, doesn't it, than recording every single moment and having it held against you. Did he record some of the negotiations, the discussions, the deliberations about the Cuban Missile Crisis? Were you able to draw on those files for your book, One Minute to Midnight? If you're talking about the negotiations with Khrushchev, his opposite number in the Kremlin, no, I mean, there were no phone conversations between Kennedy and Khrushchev. They were all conducted either through intermediaries, a back channel, his brother and the Soviet ambassador in Washington, Anatoly Dobrynin, or cables across the Atlantic, which had to be deciphered at either end and uh, took a long time to communicate between Moscow and Washington. So that was all written. There's no, you know, apart from the meetings in the United Nations, and they were recorded, and there's some quite celebrated recordings of the US-UN ambassador, Adlai Stevenson, in the UN. But uh, other than that, it was all written, but, you know, all those records have come out 50, 60 years later. Yeah, of course. What about with people like McNamara or General Curtis LeMay, who was keen to maybe take a very different approach to what Kennedy wanted? Well, we do have some extraordinary conversations between particularly Curtis LeMay, who really wanted to resolve this crisis by an American show of strength and, if necessary, nuclear war with the Soviet Union. 
and uh, Kennedy and his advisors, who took a much more restrained position. And at one point, Curtis LeMay accuses Kennedy of appeasement. He says this is as bad as Munich. And of course, that, you know, thrown at that accusation thrown at Jack Kennedy, the son of Joe Kennedy, uh, the appeasement minded U.S. ambassador to London during the run up to the Second World War was, you know, an incredible insult to Kennedy. But so you do get a lot of flavor of that on the Kennedy tapes. And a topic that Kennedy had written a book on, right? Yeah, Kennedy wrote a book, I've forgotten the title, I think it was called While England Slept, something like that. While England Slept, yeah, that was it. Um, Which kind of burnished his own credentials as an anti-appeasement politician, in contrast to his father. And I think he had Munich and the record of appeasing Hitler very much in his mind when he decided he had to draw the line somewhere with Khrushchev, when Khrushchev installed those missiles in Cuba. I mean, Kennedy had said he would not tolerate this. He had met Khrushchev in Vienna for their one and only summit meeting the year before. And uh, he thought that Khrushchev was trying to bully him. So that was part of the psychological background to the build-up to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Kennedy felt that uh, you know he couldn't allow Khrushchev to push him around anymore. I feel like Khrushchev kind of was trying to bully this young, new president during this period, because it had been a a bit of a hard time for Kennedy up to this point. It wasn't exactly an easy start to being president. You'd had the Berlin crisis, and we had Helena Merriman on the podcast a few months ago telling us all about this. And then you had Khrushchev pushing forwards with the resumption of above-ground nuclear testing with the world's largest nuclear bomb, the Tsar bomber, up in the Arctic. And we had the brilliant Alex Wellerstein on telling us about all this the other week. But the Cuban Missile Crisis ramps this up a bit. Do you think there's some purchase here in the fact that Khrushchev really was tightening the screws and putting the pressure on Kennedy to see what he was made of? Yeah, when they met in Vienna, you know, Khrushchev was deliberately pushing Kennedy as far as he thought he could be pushed. And he came away from that meeting with, I mean, he said, you know, this man is young enough to be my son, contemptuously. Khrushchev had been brought up in a very hard school, hard knock school of politics. And, you know, he thought this sort of young millionaire's son was an easy pushover. And, you know, that was part of what led Khrushchev to do something that Soviets had never done before, which is to install nuclear missiles in a country right on the opposite side of the world and to send an army across the Atlantic to install those missiles. I mean, I don't think that um, Khrushchev wanted to risk a nuclear war, but he certainly wanted to push Kennedy as far as possible short of a nuclear war. And he wanted to show the Americans had been installing, we sometimes forget they'd been installing missiles around the periphery of the Soviet Union in places like Turkey and Italy and Britain. And uh, Khrushchev was, you know, very upset about this and wanted to give, you know, Uncle Sam, as he put it, a taste of their own medicine. He said at one point, we're going to put a hedgehog down Uncle Sam's pants. He had a very (laughs) colourful way of expressing himself. He he did. It it brings some imagery to mind, to say the least. I mean, I'm sure that was the second choice for the title of your book as well. 
But um, take me through then to October 1962. When was it that Kennedy found out that these missiles had been placed on Cuba? Well, Kennedy found out on October the 16th, the day before October the 15th, a US U-2 spy plane had flown over the missile sites and taken photographs of uh, the missile sites, which looked very much like uh, Soviet intermediate range missile sites back in the Soviet Union. To a layman, those photographs were very difficult to interpret. Bobby Kennedy actually sort of thought it looked like a football field with kind of oblong objects in it. But the photo interpreters were able to compare the length of those oblong objects to similar oblong objects in the Soviet Union and uh, missiles that had actually been exhibited in Red Square on the occasion of May Days and uh, Revolution Days when the Soviets had this um, you know, rather quaint habit of parading their nuclear missiles in front of the entire Western diplomatic corps and all the journalists in Moscow twice a year. So the US photo analysts were able to quickly identify exactly what those missiles were and what those oblong shapes were and inform Kennedy that uh, Khrushchev had done something he said he would never do, which is to deploy nuclear-capable missiles to Cuba just 100 miles from American shores. And let's think about this in the broader history as well. This is very much the backyard of the United States. The whole point of the 1823 Monroe Doctrine, the 1904 Roosevelt Corollary, was the idea that the US would at an earlier point, stay out of the broader affairs of the European old world and would focus more on trying to get regional hegemony, regional dominance. You had wars in Cuba in 1905, Nicaragua in 1909, Haiti 1915, these small policing bandit interventions, things that we sometimes call banana wars, to make sure that the United States could have its dominance in that region of the world. So this is very much an affront to US dominance and the ability to control its affairs in its own backyard. It's a bit of an embarrassment for Kennedy that this has been able to happen on his watch. Well, right. And then you had the Cuban Revolution with Castro coming to power in 1959 and expropriating American companies, particularly the sugar companies. And then eventually Castro declaring himself to be a socialist, looking for Soviet protection. Then that in turn triggered various US attempts, some of them quite ridiculous, to overthrow Castro. I mean, first of all, there was a attempted invasion which failed catastrophically at the Bay of Pigs, but then there were a series of attempts to sabotage the Castro regime, to insert saboteurs into Cuba, all of which also ended in failure. But even though they were never came close to toppling Castro, the lesson that the Cubans and their Soviet sponsors took away from that was that the Americans would keep on trying to topple Fidel. And that also was part of the background to Khrushchev's decision to send nuclear weapons to Cuba. I mean, I think he had a mixture of motivations. Partly he just wanted to get his own back at the US. He wanted to correct the what he perceived as a nuclear imbalance between the two superpowers. But he also wanted to defend the Cuban revolution 
and he felt that this was his ace card to prevent the overthrow of Castro. And by the way, that actually succeeded because, you know, the Castros remained in par until Fidel's death, until his, then he turned over par to his brother Raul, and there's still a communist regime in Cuba. So when does Kennedy first find out about this? Who tells him and how does he react? Well, he finds out the CIA or his national security advisor come in on October the 16th. It's a Tuesday. And overnight, they have been analysing these photographs taken by the U-2 over the Soviet missile sites. And they've concluded that they are intermediate range Soviet missiles aimed at the United States. And uh, they come in and tell Kennedy that this is what has happened. And Kennedy is absolutely furious because he thinks he has a personal guarantee from Khrushchev that uh, they won't be sending offensive military equipment to Cuba. And Khrushchev has broken his word as far as JFK is concerned. So remember, too, there's domestic political context to this, that midterm elections are coming up. Kennedy is in the middle of an election campaign. He's under heavy pressure from the Republicans. And uh, he understands that unless he, you know, faces Khrushchev down and gets him to remove those nuclear missiles, he's going to take a beating in the midterm congressional elections. If you love ancient history, then don't worry, we've got you covered. I'm Tristan Hughes, host of the Ancients podcast, the podcast for all things ancient history. And these are the only surviving boxing gloves from the Roman Empire. And the earliest surviving boxing gloves for over 1,600 years. So through this material, we're actually looking at this entangled sum of hundreds and thousands, in fact, of stories of life across ancient Eurasia. Baths of Cleopatra. I had never come across any such thing before. Subscribe to The Ancients on History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So... Who is it that Kennedy decides to bring around him to help make these decisions? I I remember I was fortunate enough to interview a few of those who worked around with Kennedy because he brought a lot of the defence intellectuals from the Rand Corporation in to be advisors and undersecretaries of defence and undersecretaries of state. People like uh, Alan Enthoven and I, I spoke to some of those who advised him on security issues, people like Deirdre Henderson. And these people were very much involved in, in advising Kennedy on the best way to overcome this crisis. And they were very much an affront to the established military personnel that were there. I mean, there's some many famous occasions where they really almost come to blows and shouting at each other about the best way to proceed with this. So who does Kennedy choose to bring around him, his brain trust, his think tank, to help him make these decisions? Well, the people you mentioned are the people lower down who weren't brought into the room, you know, during the 13 days. And he forms an executive, what's called the EXCOM, or Executive Committee of the National Security Council, which is made up of 12 or 13 of the national security advisors, the most prominent of whom are Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, Bundy, the national security advisor, and a very important role is played by Kennedy's brother, Bobby Kennedy, who was the attorney general. He didn't have a direct national security role, but uh, you know he was Kennedy's most trusted advisor during the crisis and also the intermediary in the back channel with the Russians through the Soviet ambassador in Washington. Ah, I see. I didn't really know that about Bobby's role here. So, so tell me a little bit more about this. How are decisions made here? Of course, they're trying to avert <laughs> nuclear war. It's quite an important decision-making process. So what's the scale of action? Because one of the things they decide to do is they decide to place that naval blockade, don't they? But how do they get to that decision? And how do they know that that isn't going to trigger further aggression on the Soviet side? Well, One of the things going in Kennedy's favour was that the Soviets didn't know that the Americans had discovered these missiles. So there was a period of almost a week when Kennedy was able to keep that discovery secret. And he was also told by the CIA that the missiles probably weren't ready to fire, that he had a few days before he had to take a decision. Had he had to take a decision immediately, His early instincts, and particularly the instinct of uh, Bobby Kennedy, who was more sort of trigger-happy than JFK, was to bomb those missile sites. And what the Americans didn't know was that in addition to the missiles aimed at the United States, there were also tactical nuclear weapons in Cuba, some of them aimed at the U.S. naval base in Guantanamo, and others aimed at potential American landing sites in the event of a U.S. invasion. So a U.S. bombing of the missile sites could have quickly led up the escalation ladder to a U.S. invasion and to the Soviets using tactical nuclear weapons 
to repel a invasion of Cuba. Now, thankfully, that didn't happen because they had a few days to think about it. And uh, instead of bombing the missile sites, they chose an intermediary course, which was the imposition of what they called a quarantine around Cuba, saying they wouldn't let any other Soviet missile-carrying ships through to the island. And uh, in effect, that was a blockade, but they called it by a softer term, a quarantine. So, you know, Kennedy's aim from the beginning was to find room for diplomacy, for negotiations, and a quarantine allowed him to do that, to effectively buy time. It shows remarkable restraint by the president, doesn't it? Because it does seem like the most commonsensical, rational thing to do here would be just to extinguish that threat immediately as soon as you find out. But like you say, there are are many unknowns in this situation and it could have escalated up that ladder to the first use of nuclear weapons in anger since 1945. But this creates a bit of a, a standoff. So tell us how this starts to play out. How does this quarantine start to get, uh, well, increasingly tense? Well, so Kennedy goes in front of the American people eventually on television and says that the US has discovered these nuclear missiles, that the Soviets have to withdraw them, and announces a quarantine about, I think, 100 nuclear nautical miles from Cuba. US destroyers are deployed along the quarantine line. And um, in the meantime, Khrushchev has to decide what to do. And that is interesting because he sort of adopts a tone of bluster in public, but in private, he decides to turn his missile-carrying ships around. So there was never, contrary to myth and contrary to, you know, some of the movies that have been made about the missile crisis, there was never a confrontation on the blockade line between the missile-carrying ships and the U.S. Navy. There was a dangerous confrontation between the U.S. Navy and Soviet submarines that were escorting those ships to Cuba. And they came very close to the quarantine line. And some of what the Americans didn't know at the time was that the Soviet submarines were armed with nuclear torpedoes. So there were attempts by the U.S. destroyers to bring those Soviet submarines to the surface. And there were some very tense moments on board the Soviet submarines as they decided whether or not to use their nuclear torpedoes, which could have blown an entire American flotilla out of the water. So it was, there certainly was you know, dangerous moments along the quarantine line, but it wasn't quite popularly imagined. Was it true that one of the submarines did lose contact and had to make the choice about whether or not they were going to fire those torpedoes or not? Yeah, well, the Soviet submarine commanders only had contact with their headquarters back in in Russia when they came to the surface. There was no way for them to contact. I mean, communications in those days was much more primitive than it is now, and that was true at the whole, all communications including military communications. So, yeah, those Soviet submarine commanders had to make decisions on their own without consulting Moscow. Wow, I mean, again, thank goodness there was restraint on both sides. It's something that we don't really think about. As I sit here talking to you, thousands of miles between us, with a video stream going backwards and forwards, that they were 
in one of the most tense situations in the history of the world, largely deaf and largely blind under the water. It's um, not a situation we would want to be in. That's not only applied to the Soviet submarine commanders, but actually the Soviet commanders on Cuba and uh, the people in charge of those tactical nuclear weapons that I mentioned, they often captains and majors, and there were no kind of locks on the nuclear weapons. So they could have physically been fired without authorization from Moscow. In the event of a US invasion, it would have depended not on a decision by the Soviet leadership, but on the responses of Soviet fairly low-level Soviet officers, captains and majors in some cases. Was that officially decentralised in that way, the command and control process around Soviet nuclear weapons launched? Because it was slightly different for the United States and remains being different for the United States in terms of sole authority over the use of nuclear weapons being in the hands of the president, wrongly or rightly. Was that something that was enshrined within Soviet policy? Well, initially, Soviet commanders had authorization to use tactical nuclear weapons. That was withdrawn from them in the case of Cuba. But there's a distinction between the legal authorization and what they would have done in a crisis if all communications were cut with Moscow, as they probably would have been. In that case, they would have been left on their own, and they may only have had nuclear weapons with which to defend themselves. And in that case, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to Soviet veterans and a number of them told me that they think that they you know, could have foreseen circumstances in which they would have used nuclear weapons against an American invading force. That's incredible that these discussions that um, are life and death discussions, not only for them, but for the world itself, were taking place at this time. Was there any point at which Khrushchev realised or thought that he'd pushed Kennedy a bit too far? Well, I think uh, quickly after the Kennedy announced that the Americans had discovered those missiles, I mean, that came as a huge surprise and a huge shock to Khrushchev. And I mean, had it happened a week or two later when the missiles were actually ready to fire, it would have been a different situation because then uh, Khrushchev could have presented the Americans with a fait accompli. Actually, he talked earlier about Americans will never discover this because we can disguise the missiles to look like palm trees, which was a figment of his imagination. So, yeah, he got this shock of his life. And, um, you know, you see both Kennedy and Khrushchev having brought the world to the edge of nuclear war. They're both frantically trying to, you know, pull the world back from the edge without losing too much face. So how does this start to resolve itself? How do they start to pull the world back from the brink of nuclear war? Well, they're sending mixed signals to each other, on the one hand being very bellicose, but on the other hand, you know, searching for a way out. And, you know, some of those communications from Khrushchev to Kennedy, I mean, they're sending both messages at once. And at a certain point, Khrushchev, I think both men realise that they don't have full control over their own military and over their own nuclear weapons. And they understand that this can escalate very quickly. And Khrushchev is alarmed by a telegram he receives from Fidel Castro saying, you know, the time has essentially come to use your nuclear weapons against the imperialists. 
if in the event of a US invasion of Cuba. And this shows Khrushchev that, uh, you know, he's really playing with fire. And it's at that point that he decides he certainly cannot entrust the decision-making to his ally Fidel, and that he's going to, you know, pull his missiles out of Cuba somehow. And Kennedy also understands that, you know, he has to make a gesture. So he sends his brother, Bobby, to the Soviet embassy in Washington. And essentially, they work out a deal that the Soviets will pull out their missiles from Cuba. But in return, the US will issue a non-invasion guarantee of Cuba that US forces will stop trying to overthrow Castro. And quietly, without any publicity, they will also pull those American missiles out of Turkey, you know, analogous missiles. I mean, that part of the deal did not become public for about 40 years. But, you know, it was certainly part of the assurances that the US had given to Khrushchev in return for pulling out his missiles publicly from Cuba, which was a great humiliation both for Khrushchev and for the Soviet Union. So there are big concessions on either side here. If we're to look back at the history now and and consider it, who do you think won in terms of the Cuban Missile Crisis? Who made out better? Was it Kennedy because that removal of the missiles from Turkey was not made public, whereas Khrushchev had to have this quite public withdrawal of military power from that region? Or was it Khrushchev because, you know, I mean... Castro was able to maintain that socialist stronghold on Cuba that continues today. Well, publicly, in the eyes at least of American public opinion and probably Western public opinion, you know, Kennedy won this showdown because uh, Khrushchev did have to pull those missiles out and the other parts of the deal were, you know, kept secret for some time or not given publicity to. And Khrushchev was you know, pushed out of office the following year by his colleagues. And one of the main charges against him was, you know, harebrained scheming in Cuba and mishandling this whole crisis. So, you know, Khrushchev politically lost out. He lost his job a year later. Kennedy, of course, was assassinated a year later. You know, in some ways, the real victor was Fidel Castro, who remained in power for another 50 years, um, because the missile crisis did put an end to those U.S. attempts to overthrow Castro, the Castro regime. And, you know, pretty much solidified Castro's hold on power, even though Castro perceived this as an incredible defeat at the time. He was furious when he learned that Khrushchev was pulling out his missiles. But in the end, it worked to his advantage. He survived longer than any of them. Well, that's true, isn't it? That's a strange one to reflect back on. He certainly did last a lot longer than any of them. But it must have been a difficult one to trust that this decision would hold at that point because it's far easier perhaps for him to to rest at night knowing you've got this military capability that makes it almost impossible for you to be attacked in terms of your ability to retaliate and have a potentially a strike capability back at the United States. But to trust merely the words of the Soviet Union and the United States is far harder to do. Although, like you say, in the long term, it most certainly turned out for the best for Castro. So tell us, Michael, where can we read more about this amazing period of history? 
Well, I'd like to think that my book, which I wrote more than a decade ago, One Minute to Midnight, is still the authoritative account of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I think what distinguishes it from a lot of other books is that I tell the story not only from the American point of view, but also from the Soviet point of view, and not only from the high level, but also from the low level. I mean, I think we were in the early stages of nuclear war in October 1962, where decisions rested with captains and majors on both the Soviet and American side. And so I go down to this, you know, dig down deep into, you know, how decision making was taken, how decisions were made, how the nuclear missiles were moved around Cuba, the various incidents that could have triggered a nuclear war, which thankfully didn't. And essentially, my thesis is that the real risk that we ran in 1962 was not the confrontation between Kennedy and Khrushchev, who ultimately both wanted to find a way out of the crisis. The real risk was from lower down that you know, they lost control over there. There was very little command and control. And had they not wrapped this crisis up as soon as they did, then things would have quickly got out of hand and they were already getting out of hand. As US U-2 strayed over Soviet missile space, the eastern part of the Soviet Union, on the most dangerous day of the crisis. Another U-2 was shot down over Cuba. There was a confrontation between the Soviet submarines and the US destroyers. There were all kinds of things happening in Cuba itself. Any of one of these incidents could have led to a rapid nuclear escalation had the crisis continued. And so the real lesson I came away with as a result of studying this, particularly in 1962, was that the greatest risk of nuclear war came from things that the leaders couldn't control, the unpredictable twists of history. And an American president and a Soviet leader may have been the two most powerful men in the world, but there was so much that neither of them could control. And their real you know, contribution, their real strength as leaders at that time was they realized that. They understood that, you know, events were just speeding up in a way that they could no longer control, which was why they both moved to bring an end to the crisis and was, I think, their biggest contribution. Well, as we see tensions increasing between Russia and the United States at the moment over Ukraine, there's certainly a lot of lessons to take away from this history. Michael, I could talk about this topic all day. It's one of my favourite periods of history, as our listeners know all too well. They've heard me go on about it so much. So thank you so much for your time. It really was a pleasure. And we're going to get you back on the podcast to talk about Watergate when your new book comes out. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.